Well, take your Bible, if you will, and open it up to the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 14, where we return to our study of this marvelous book. Jeremiah 14. The Dust Bowl droughts of the 1930s are widely considered to be the the drought of record for the U.S. Some often refer to it as if it were one episode, but actually there were several distinct events in that decade, the 1930s. There were perhaps four major drought episodes that occurred in that decade. The affected region, which is known as the Great Plains of the U.S., that extended over southeastern Colorado, southwestern Kansas, the panhandles of both Texas and Oklahoma, and northeastern New Mexico, all of which covered about 100 million acres. That region was not able to recover adequately before another drought began. The term Dust Bowl was coined in 1935 by a reporter who used it to describe the horrific dust storms that emerged. Amazing to see some of the photos from this. It is estimated that some 1.2 billion tons of soil were lost across those 100 million acres. Over 20%, that's one out of five of all rural families in the Great Plains received federal emergency relief, and over three million folks were uprooted to look for a home elsewhere, many of which came to California. Now, there are many theories as to what were the contributing factors that led to the, that devastating decade in American history, but as we come to Jeremiah 14, we have but one contributing factor for the drought that we read about in this chapter. One contributing factor. Do you know who that one contributing factor is? It is God. It is Yahweh who has brought this devastating drought that has affected the entire land of Judah If you recall, we're studying the condemnation that God makes to Judah through his servant Jeremiah, from chapter 2 all the way to chapter 29. We had made mention that in this section, Jeremiah is given 14 messages to the treacherous people of Judah, 14 messages from chapter 2 through chapter 29. And to no surprise, and it shouldn't really surprise any of you, we have only covered the first four. We have a long ways to go, but again, little by little. The first message, chapter 2 through chapter 3, verse 5, apostasy and ingratitude. The second message, chapter 3, verse 6 through chapter 6, is a call to repentance. The third message, which is chapter 7 through 10, is all about deception and stubbornness of God's people. The fourth message, the last one we looked at, was a refusal to listen and obey, chapters 11 through 13. 
But this morning, we endeavor to look at the first part of the fifth message, which really goes from chapter 14 through chapter 17, verse 18. You can title this message, God's Determination to Punish Judah, part one. This chapter, chapter 14 of Jeremiah, can be divided into three parts. That's the occasion, the intercession, and the reaction. The occasion for the lament that you read about, the intercession of lament, and the reaction to the lament. Here we have a hard providence brought about by God's determination to punish a people for their iniquities. Here we have God's character and nature on display for all of us to see in this chapter. You see, my beloved, he is a God of justice, of judgment, of vengeance, of wrath, and punishment. And you need to be reminded of this this morning, that this too brings him glory and honor. This is a hard message, but one that is proclaimed here in this passage of Scripture. And so we read in this chapter God's determination to punish Judah and the warning that we are given to heed this warning concerning sin. Now, when we speak of sin, you have to consider both the deed and its consequences, the misdeed and its punishment. When you look at sin, you have to look at that. Both the deed, the act of sin, and the consequences to that sin. The misdeed and the punishment. Sometimes when you read concerning sin in Scripture or iniquity, the focus is on the deed, the act itself. And sometimes when you read of Scripture and Scripture concerning sin, it will focus on the outcome of that misdeed, hence the punishment. And sometimes when you read of sin in Scripture, it will focus on the situation between the deed and the consequence, and that's guilt, the guilt and shame associated with that sin. What it goes to show us is that in the Old Testament, sin and its penalty are not so separate as we think of it. And Jeremiah 14 will unfold that. So let's begin with this look at this fifth message, God's determination to punish Judah. Let's look at the occasion. What brings us about? There is this drought in the land in verses 1 through 6. There is a severe drought in the land of Judah, and it causes great mourning among the people. Note the clear heading in verse 1. That which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah in regard to the what? To the drought. In the Hebrew text, drought in chapter 14, verse 1, is plural, which suggests two possibilities. Either it was a prolonged drought also referred to as an intensive plural in Hebrew. And hence, you could translate it or you could look at it as a, a great drought. 
Or perhaps it was a succession of short, severe ones, a, a series of droughts. As we spoke about earlier, either way, the drought left devastating consequences to all who lived in that land. This was a hard providence, to say the least, to live in such a day. Now, some of you may ask, how bad was this drought? And you would be asking a great question. How bad was this drought? Look at verse 2. Judah mourns and her gates languish. They sit on the ground in mourning, and the cry of Jerusalem has ascended. You need to see that this is nationwide. This is not just happening in the city of Jerusalem, but in the country as a whole. Judah in, is in mourning over the times they are in. Her gaze refers to other cities as well. All were mourning. And, Jer and Jeremiah is there to witness it all. He sees them languish. They dwindle. They, that is to say, they wither away. They dry up and sit on the ground in mourning, literally in mourning garb. They sit on the ground dressed in black to express their mourning. That or it could be that they have blackened their clothes from the dust that they've heaped on themselves. Either way, it vividly portrays their distress, the times that they're in. And the capital city of Jerusalem cries out for help. The cry of the city has ascended. Now the question is, ascended to whom? Ascended to whom? To the Lord, to Yahweh. They know that God is behind this hard providence. You see, a drought was never viewed as a chance occurrence. Why? Because of what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Turn there for a moment. I want you to see this. Deuteronomy chapter 28. 28, beginning with verse 15. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15. But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Well, what are those curses? Verse 16. Curse shall you be in the city, and curse shall you be in the country. You won't be able to avoid this. Curse shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Curse shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of the ground, of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Curse shall be you be when you come in, and curse shall you be when you go out. Verse 20. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke. And all you undertake to do until you are destroyed, until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence cling to you until he has consumed you from the land where you are entering to possess it. Verse 22, the Lord will smite you with consumption, with fever and with inflammation and with fiery heat and with the sword and with blight and with mildew. And they will pursue you until you perish. These were extending, extended warnings. 
there would be disastrous results if you disobeyed, disobeyed the Lord. And the people were told this right at the outset. If you disobey, these were the consequences. Notice the words in verse 23 and 24. We're not done yet. Verse 23, the heaven which is over your head shall be what? Bronze. The earth which is under you, what? Iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. No rain would fall from the heavens. No rain to water the ground. And the earth would be as hard as iron. You need to realize that the drought ought to have made the people take a long, hard look at themselves. Listen, my beloved, whenever there is calamity, we are to be reminded of the broken world that we live in, that there is sin in the world. It reminds us of sin. It doesn't sit well with us, right? Right? You're awake. I know you had two cups of coffee already. I saw some of you. Yeah, that's right. Really, when we face calamity, we have to look hard at ourselves and be reminded of sin. It ought to cause us to look at ourselves and ask where we are in our relationship to God, where we are as a nation. We have to do this when we face calamity. My beloved, what you cannot do is ignore hardships as if they don't exist, as if they're not there. You cannot ignore calamity and disaster and do nothing to evaluate where things are in your relationship to God. Listen carefully. Ignore warnings and you will see tragic consequences follow. Let me say that again. Ignore warnings and you will see tragic consequences follow. So what does this drought mean for the inhabitants? Another great question you ask. Look down at verse 3. Their nobles have sent their servants for water. They have come to the cisterns and found no water. They have returned with their vessels empty. They have been put to shame and humiliated. And they cover their heads. Stop right there. Their nobles refers to prominent men. Literally, they're mighty ones. They are the ones who send their servants to do those menial tasks like getting water. Both servants and nobles are shamed, ashamed and disgraced. While it is the servants who have to report the bad news to their nobles that there is no water, it is the noblemen who are shamed and humiliated because nobles always have the best water supply, and yet, here, they are without. But they are not the only ones who face this dismaying drought in the land. 
It is the farmers as well. Look down at verse 4. In the middle of verse 4, the farmers have been put to shame. Stop right there. What a great reminder to us all that calamity has a way of destroying any kind of social divisions. Whether you're a mighty one, whether you're a prominent one, whether you have cash and dinero, that means money, (laughs) or not, you at this point face that same reality. The ground under you is cracked. Verse Verse 4 says, literally dismayed, because the ground is cracked, for there has been no rain on the land. The ground has become dismayed, for there has been no rain on the land. This has affected all who dwell in the land of Judah. There was a time not so long ago where you were at that Chevron looking for toilet paper. That's right, at a gas station. They sold those two rolls of toilet paper for $20. No matter if you were rich or you're poor, you're both at that same gas station looking for toilet paper. When you face calamity, it has a way of destroying who's prominent, who's not. The ground is cracked. It's affected everyone. Farmers are unable to work the soil with no prospect of a harvest. But notice the same action that is repeated in verse 4 as it is in verse 3. They have covered their heads. The prominent ones have covered their heads. And so have the farmers. Both the nobles and farmers have covered their heads, which is a customary gesture to show their grief. You see that in chapter 6 of Esther, verse 12. The nobles are showing their grief because the ground is cracked. Now comes the grief of the farmers, and their concern extends, look down at verse 5, to the dough in the field. Verse 5, for even the dough in the field has given birth only to abandon her young because there is no grass. Things are really bad. Notice the word even, which in Hebrew indicates and emphasizes this is an extreme case. What is that extreme case? The doe, who is usually known for her devoted care for her young, has given birth only to abandon them. Verse 5 tells us. Normally, a female deer would give birth deep in the woods, secluded from everyone. But here she is in the open field in search of food. She's not thinking of her young. She's thinking of starvation, hunger, and food. Notice that we've moved away from the city now to the country, from the elite to the, in society to those who are tilling the ground, the farmers. This drought is affecting every living creature. Now read on to verse 6 to another shift that is aimed to give you a picture of the totality of this drought. Verse 6, the wild donkeys stand on the bare heights. They pant for air like jackals. 
their eyes fell, for there is no vegetation. What's going on here? Even wild donkeys who would normally find grass anywhere are standing on bare heights. And they are gasping for breath in the heat like jackals. They are dying and their eyes fail. According to Job 39 verse 8, normally a wild donkey searches after every green thing, Job tells us. But here there is absolutely no vegetation. They are lacking nourishment and their eyes fail. Do you know that there is a vitamin in grass? A vitamin in grass. It's vitamin what? Anybody know? A. Good job. Vitamin A. You can pat yourself on the back if you'd like or something. I don't know. Yay flag. <laughs> I got it right. I got it right. Vitamin A. Those who raise cattle supplement them with vitamin A during the winter months. One of the effects of a lack of vitamin A in animals, and for people for that matter, is blindness. The cornea becomes very dry, thus damaging the retina and the cornea. The eyes then become the look of death. And so what do you have here? Empty cisterns, dried up pasture lands, wild animals that are at the point of starvation and death. Now you get the picture that all Judah is mourning. From the city to the country, from the nobleman to the lowly farmer, and even wild animals are stricken with the devastating effects of this drought. And so when calamity comes, who do you turn to? Who do you turn to when you face such calamity? People? To God, to the Lord. The occasion, the drought in the land, the intercession that Jeremiah makes is, do not leave us, Yahweh. Notice how verse 7 begins. Although our iniquities testify against us, O Lord, act for your name's sake. Truly our apostasies have been many. We have sinned against you. Here, Jeremiah is praying to the Lord. But notice this, he's not above his people. He is one of them. He connects with them. And so he prays our iniquities, our apostasies. We have sinned against you. Daniel did the same thing when he prayed for his own people. Daniel chapter 9, verse 4 and 5. I pray to the Lord my God and confess and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. And then he says this, Daniel, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. This is a great reminder that we identify with God's people in prayer. 
We are to be like Paul. Praying always for, for me? No. For? For you. For one another. Colossians 1.3, 2 Thessalonians 1.11. We don't intercede for ourselves alone in prayer, my beloved. It's not just about you. It isn't, and it's not about me. We intercede on behalf of others. That's why I love how Sean and Elfrida devote themselves to sending out the prayer requests, right? That we receive. It's a great reminder to us all. There's a lot of life going on here, folks. And all you have to do is just listen and talk and hear about what is going on in people's lives. And you have just a boatload of lists of things for you to pray about each Sunday as you engage each other in words about what's going on in your life. Or when you don't see each other and you've been away for some time to be able to get an update and to pray for you. You have to see yourself bound up with others, my beloved. Not apart from them, but with them. With them. Samuel said it this way in 1 Samuel 12, 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by doing what? By ceasing to pray for you. What Jeremiah is doing here is modeling intercessory prayer on behalf of his people. And he talks about at it as joining with them, not apart from them. It's our sins, our iniquities. We have done this. You see, Jeremiah doesn't see this drought as a cheer, as a chance occurrence. Not one bit. Not one bit. There is one. And one alone who is behind this drought. It is Yahweh. You see, my beloved, when your gaze is upward, when your gaze is upward above the calamity of here and now, guess what? There is absolutely no room for excuses. There is no room to contend with Yahweh. There's no room to evade, avoid, escape the reality of our sin, you see. Notice how he begins in verse 7. Although our iniquities testify against us, Jeremiah knows that this drought has come because of our iniquities, our apostasies, because we have sinned against the Lord. David understood this when he prayed in Psalm 51. You know that psalm. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. I can't hold it against God. He is just. He's without blame. I can't give excuses. I know the reality when I've been confronted with sin, right? You know this very well, and I do too. 
because of the work of the Holy Spirit convicting us of our sin. We know that God is just, blameless when he judges. But what Jeremiah is doing here, what Jeremiah is asking for here in verse 7, is that God would act for his name's sake. Pastor John just said it at first hour. What is his namesake? His glory. His plea is for God's honor and glory. See, we're not just talking, we're, just, we're not asking for God's justice here at this moment. We're not asking for God's justice. If we were, we know that we would be deserving of hell, judgment, and damnation. That's not what we're asking the Lord. At this point, Jeremiah is asking for mercy to God, for God to withhold his judgment. Yahweh, you do everything for your own namesake. You do everything for your glory. Forgive us for that too. We'll put your glory on display for all to see. Forgive us. That's the prayer. You also have it said in 1 Samuel 12, 22, for the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. David pleaded on this basis in Psalm 25, verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Asaph, in Psalm 79, verse 9, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Again, God does everything for his glory, for his own sake. And he will put on display for all to see that he is a God of justice, that he is a God of judgment, of vengeance, of wrath and punishment. But you need to also see that he will put himself on display for all to see that he is a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of love, a God of forgiveness. Jeremiah is just asking that Yahweh would put on display that he is a God of mercy. Please, O oh Lord. Do this, for this too would bring you glory and honor. I know that being just would bring you glory, that your wrath would bring you glory, that your punishment, your just punishment, would bring you glory, but I'm asking you that you would bring glory to yourself by having mercy on us. Not just me, but for the people, for this land. His hope is in Yahweh, the hope of Israel. Jeremiah knows Yahweh to be the Savior in time of distresses. As we read in verse 8, look down again. 
in verse 8, but he also has a question. Oh, hope of Israel, its savior in time of its savior in time of distress. Why are you like a stranger in the land? Or like a traveler who has pitched his tent for the night? This is the great why question that all believers have asked at one point or another in great desperation. You've probably asked this question, right? Why? I'm not the only one, right? Okay, fine. I'll take your silence. The Lord knows. Why? We know God to be who he says he is in his word. He is our hope. He is our savior. And yet we dare ask, why? Why? A stranger who cares little about the land? A traveler who is here today and gone tomorrow? That's not you, God but it seems like you are. The why questions continue. This is how bad things get when we are in desperation. We're not just satisfied with one why, but many whys. Notice the other why question in verse 9. Why are you like a man dismayed, like a mighty man who cannot save? Oh, you better watch it here. Why are you like a man dismayed? That is to say astonished or surprised. The idea is one who looks on in astonishment at a crisis unfolding, but does nothing about it. Is that the Lord? Can he be caught by surprise? Is he doing nothing? Absolutely no. Yet I understand these are all rhetorical questions, but they're all posed in a state of great desperation. Jeremiah recognizes Yahweh likened to a mighty man. And it would be a strange thing for him not to save, not to rescue, not to deliver us. Look down at the remaining part of verse 9. Yet you are in our midst, O Lord, and we are called by your name, do not forsake us. And all the rhetorical questions are answered right here. God is in our midst. He hasn't gone anywhere. He hasn't been on vacation. He hasn't left you. God is in our midst. You haven't left us. We know this. We are your people. These are the truths that we preach to ourselves, that we need to preach to ourselves. And so the intercession ends with, do not forsake us. Literally, lay us not down. Or the Legacy Standard Bible, do not leave us. This is a cry for deliverance, my beloved. This is a cry for mercy. But what is the reaction to all of this? Are you ready for the hard truth this morning? The drought was just the very beginning. The occasion for all this lament. Here is the reaction from the Lord. I pray you receive it well. 
This goes down from verse 10 all the way through the end of the chapter. And what you see here is the Lord react to Jeremiah's intercession. Jeremiah comes to the Lord three times, three different occasions in this chapter. And he is denied each time. What is the answer or the response to Jeremiah's plea and confession to the Lord? Are you ready for this? Look down at verse 10. Thus says the Lord to this people. Even so, they have loved to wander. They have not kept their feet in check. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and call their sins to account. I know it's a rough morning to be in joint ears this morning. But you need to hear this, my beloved. This comes at the heels of his appeal for deliverance and for mercy. You see, the people of God had wandered off to other gods, and in doing so, they had rejected Yahweh. They are guilty of promiscuous behavior in their worship of other gods. They have not kept their feet in check. That is habitual behavior that cannot be stopped. Therefore, how will Yahweh put his name on display? He will put himself on display for all to see that he is a God of justice, that he is a God of judgment, that he is a God of vengeance, of wrath, and that he is a God of punishment. And again, this too brings glory to God. You see, my beloved, God does not accept worshipers who wander aimlessly after other gods. He wants all of you, all of you, that Christ may be all in all. That you would look above, things above and not on earthly things. For as we read in Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Not only will ye not accept false and adulterous worshipers, but God will not accept their offerings as well. This is another correlating passage here. But in Amos 5, 22, even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Not only not accepting such worshipers, but notice what else Yahweh says in verse 10. Going back to Jeremiah 14, verse 10. Now he will remember their iniquity and call their sins to account. I mean, this was part of Jeremiah's confession on behalf of the people. He spoke of our iniquities, answer against us. We have sinned against you. 
Hasn't he done rightly by doing so? And yet God says here in his response that he is to call them to account. That is to say to punish them for their unfaithfulness. Punish them for their sins. In addition, we read the instructions from Yahweh to Jeremiah in verse 11. So the Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. See how far removed it is? This people, this people, they're not my people, this, this people. It's bad. In fact, this was the third time God told Jeremiah not to pray for the people. He comes at it again. He's like a Moses. He's like an Abraham, uh, a mediator, if you will. He's praying on behalf of the people. And God tells him three times, stop praying for them. Stop praying for them. Chapter 7, verse 16. Chapter 11, verse 14. And here in chapter 14, verse 11. But again, God's not done with his answer. Look at verse 12. When they fast, I'm not going to listen to their cry. And when they offer burnt offerings and grain offering, I'm not going to accept them. Just like we read in Amos. Rather, I'm going to make an end of them by the sword, famine, and pestilence. Now, some of you might be tempted to think, especially after this morning, where is the God of love? Doesn't that seem a little bit harsh? You need to understand the depth of their treachery. You need to understand the just punishment God has ordained for them. Not only to remember their iniquity and call their sins to account, but he says here, to make an end of them by the sword, famine, and pestilence. You see, earlier on in chapter 2, there's so much to say here, but I'm going to try to be brief here. The Lord speaks in chapter 2 with a powerful indictment of the nation's rebellion. At the very get-go, at the very start of his 14 messages, at the very beginning in chapter 2, a strong indictment against the nation of Judah, against their rebellion. Israel was described as a harlot with many lovers. Chapter 3, verse 1. They, they depended on Egypt and Assyria for help instead of going for help to the Lord. Verse, chapter 2, verse 37, the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust and you will not prosper with them. You think the help is found in them, but it is not. Only help comes from me. You need to call upon me. And yet you go after other gods. You go after other nations. You call your friends instead of pray to me. Not only was it shameful that they put their trust in other nations, but they had turned to their false gods as well, their false idols as well. And in a vivid fashion, Israel is likened to a wild donkey in the time of her heat. Chapter 2, verse 24. She is violently enslaved and driven to lust after the Baals. And God says, just look at your way in the valley. 
The Lord declares in chapter 2, verse 23, Just look at what is done in all those heathen rites you participate in the valley. Do you think that I don't see those things? Israel has become an addict. And God will be glorified among all the nations as he punishes the people of Judah. Now there were those that did not believe God would punish his people. There were those who spoke lies. There were those that were lying prophets of the day. Not only will you have the poor among you, but guess what? You will have lying preachers as well. Be on guard. Jeremiah makes another plea before the Lord. This is the second one here. Before the Lord and reveals these lying prophets. Look down in verse 13. But, ah, Lord God, I said, look, the prophets are telling them, you will not see the sword, nor will you have famine, but I will give you lasting peace in this place. Stop right there. See, the lying prophets are to blame, is what Jeremiah tells the Lord. They lull the people into thinking that everything's going to be okay. Usually, prophets come telling you that you're not walking in the Lord's will. Usually, prophets come and tell you, come back to the Lord. Usually, usually you have prophets who are faithful to call you on your sin. And tell you to come back to God. But these lying prophets are nothing of the sort. True prophets were never really popular back then, nor will they be. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 reminds us, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their what? Ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own what? Desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So what were they lying about in Jeremiah's day? You see, they preached deliverance and peace so that the people would not believe in the imminence of judgment. There's no talk of sin, nor of the consequences of sin. No warning but just the tickling of ears. So again, how does the Lord respond? Look at verse 14. And the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them nor commanded them to speak nor spoken to them. They are prophesying, prophesying, prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds, of, of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who are prophesying in my name, although it was not I who sent them, yet they kept saying, there will be no sword or famine in this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall meet their end. The prophets will have their just reward. They will meet their end. But that doesn't take away the people's guilt, you see. 
the people should have known that the Lord punishes sin. They should have not believed. They should have not believed the false prophets. Look down in verse 16. The people also to whom they are prophesying will be thrown out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword. There will be no one to bury them. That's how bad things are. Neither them, nor their wives, nor their sons, nor their daughters. For I will pour out their own wickedness on them. You see, to lie unburied was one of the most dreadful fates that could overtake a man. Even to this day, desecration of graves is held to be the grossest of insults to those who have died. But men and women, young and old, would die and lie unburied on the streets of Jerusalem. Bodies laying on the ground. How would you respond to this if you were the prophet Jeremiah? Look at verse 17. You will say this word to them. Let my eyes flow down with tears night and day. and Let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people has been crushed with a mighty blow, with a sorely inflicted wound. If I go out to the country, behold, those slain with a sword. Or if I enter the city, behold, diseases of famine. For both prophet and priest have gone roving about in the land, and they do not know. This is why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, but you would be called that too. Because he loves his people. He is absolutely shocked to think of the aftermath. Which causes only, which causes him to go to the Lord a third time. A third time. Look down in verse 19 through 22. Have you completely rejected Judah? Again, asking the questions again. Have you loathed Zion? Why have you stricken us so that we are beyond healing? Who waited for peace, but nothing good came. And for a time of healing, but behold, terror. We know our wickedness. Again, he repeats what he first started out with. We know our wickedness, O Lord, the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not despise us for your own name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember and do not annul your covenant with us. Are there any among the idols of the nations who give rain? Or can the heavens grant showers? Is it not you, O Lord, our God? Therefore we hope in you, for you are the one who has done all these things. Notice what they admit as the basis of their calamity and what Jeremiah says. We have sinned against you. But again, somehow there is this separation of sin and the consequences of sin. But that doesn't stop Jeremiah from asking for mercy. Have you completely rejected Judah? The short-term answer is yes. The long-term answer is no. Again, my beloved, you cannot escape the consequences for sin. You cannot expect salvation 
without repentance. That we acknowledge our sin is a good thing, but we cannot assume that the consequences will be erased. And so Jeremiah prays, on the basis of your name, Yahweh, on the basis of the throne of your glory, Yahweh, on the basis of your covenant, Yahweh, have mercy. My beloved, allow me to end with this last phrase in verse 22. With this I land the plane. You are the one who has done all these things. Did you catch that? I want you to underline that, highlight that, do everything to remember that. You are the one who has done all these things. This is where we live and breathe and have our being. With knowing that the Lord does everything for his own sake, he does as he pleases, all is subject to his sovereign rule. He's not dependent on us. We are dependent upon him. He's really the one who brings rain, and he's the one who withholds rain. He is the one who brings blessing. He is the one who brings judgment. Much of the attention, much of the time of our attention is on the circumstance, but it really should be on God. It's turning the corner when you stop looking at the circumstance and look to God. When you stop looking at the here and now and what's on earth and your gaze is upward, it's a game changer. It's a game changer. On God who has done all these things for his good pleasure, for purposes that belong only to God, that he has not promised to tell you or me what they are, always. You see, God will put himself on display for all to see that he is a God of justice, of judgment, of vengeance, of wrath, that he is a God of punishment. But praise be to the Lord that he will put, on himself, he will put himself on display for all to see that he is a God of mercy, of grace, and love, and forgiveness. What you cannot do, my beloved, is go on sinning endlessly and become an addict, wandering aimlessly after other gods. And even if you were to acknowledge your sin, confess it, you cannot assume that you bear no consequence to your sin. King David carried the consequences of his sin all the days of his life. You understand that? Psalm 51, my sin is ever before me. Only God can remove sin as far as the east is from the west. Only in glory will that be erased. But here on earth, we live even with the consequences. Glory be to God. Because they have a way of humbling that humbling us and reminding us of our need for a Savior, for the Lord God himself. Even if you were to acknowledge your sin, you must assume the consequences. King David did so. 
Your only remedy is to return to the Lord your God. If you are a believer this morning, your responsibility is always to evaluate yourself and your standing before the Lord. Where am I with you, Lord? I don't want anything to be between you and I. I want the closeness of fellowship with you. I want to know the joy of my salvation. I don't want to be stricken with guilt, so I need to confess my sin, return to you. That's what the drought is aimed to do. That's what the punishment is aimed to do, draw you to himself. That's what the calamity is meant to do, draw you to God, draw you to him. And so we don't say, at that point, remove this cup of suffering away from us. We embrace the cup of suffering. Who does that? The child of God does that because of what it brings, the nearness of God. The nearness of God. If you're not a believer this morning, then you need to acknowledge your sin and turn away from everything that would dishonor the Lord. You need to repent and you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to believe on him to save you, to rescue you from yourself, from your sin, to forgive you. Only Jesus can do that through the blood, through the cross. My beloved, whatever hard providences we face as a people or even as a nation, put your hope in God. God doesn't disappoint He will put himself on display for his own glory, for his purposes. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jeremiah chapter 14. Thank you for this time to be able to impart these eternal truths. We ask that you would write these eternal truths upon our hearts. We want to draw close to you. We want your fellowship. We want the joy of our salvation. We recognize our sin, we acknowledge it, we confess it, and we ask, Lord, that you would help us to walk rightly, even as we have been exhorted this morning to walk in love. May we be a people who understand and know love because we know our Savior. May you be glorified in all that you do. We are pleased with your will as we should be all the time. Help us when we don't understand your will. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.